Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Hey, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name's Luke and I get to serve as one of the ministers here. And if you're new with us, we're honored that you would join us. Uh, like Brad said, our mission as a church is to help you become fully alive in Jesus. So man, wherever you are on that journey, we would love to connect with you. If you wanna let us know that you're here, uh, you can do that by scanning that QR code on the seat back in front of you. It'll have some next step stuff on there. And also if you're new, you can feel free to introduce yourself at the Welcome Center out there in the lobby. If that's easier and you're more of a face-to-face kind of person, we would love to connect with you in that way as well. Uh, We are kicking off a new series today, but before we jump in, um, I have an exciting announcement for you about a new partnership. Um, Like we've said, we want to be fully alive in Jesus as individuals, and we've said that that means three things. It means that God made you for life with Jesus, in community, and on mission. But that's not just what God wants for us as individuals, that's also what God wants for us as a community, as Plainfield Christian Church. And so one of the ways that we're going to be living on mission as a church over the next few years is a new partnership in the Dominican Republic with Go Ministries. Now, we've been partners with Go Ministries for a while now, but we're doing something new. Check out this video, and then we're going to talk more about it. Go Ministries empowers local leaders to make disciples as God redeems people, renews communities, and restores creation. Disciple-making happens through three focused areas of ministry, church planting, medical, and sports. Church planting works with passionate local leaders to make disciples and then witnesses the church emerge with a vision of planting 1,000 churches in 10 years. Go Medical meets physical and spiritual needs by providing gospel-centered care both in their medical center and in partnership with their church planting communities. Plainfield Christian Church is excited to partner with Go Ministries in their vision to plant 1,000 churches in the Dominican Republic in the next 10 years. To do this, PCC will be adopting the community of Garabo in the city of Santiago. The community of Garabo is roughly the size of Plainfield, with over 40,000 people and 10 neighborhoods that need to hear the good news of Jesus. Over the next five years, we want to see a church planted in each of those 10 neighborhoods and will be partnering with local Dominican leaders to make that dream a reality. As we take trips to Garabo, give money, and dedicate ourselves to praying for the work that God is doing there, we believe that we will get to see the kingdom of God come and the will of God be done in Garabo as it is in heaven. So we love Go Ministries and the work that they're doing in the DR. Our high schoolers have been taking trips down there for years now. And Go Ministries, they do three main things in the Dominican Republic, like you saw. They have a medical ministry where they help give uh, healthcare to people who don't have access to good healthcare. They have a sports ministry because the DR is sports crazy. So they use that to train hundreds and hundreds of kids, both in their sports, but also to use that as an avenue to teach them about Jesus. And then they also have a church planting arm. And the guy who leads the church planting at Go Ministries is Ryan Sudsbury. Some of you might know him. He grew up here. He's a PCC guy, and he is serving there, leading all their church planning stuff. And I think it was three years ago, the first time I heard Ryan share their vision to plant a 1,000 churches in the Dominican Republic in the next 10 years. And I'll tell you that my gut reaction when I heard Ryan say that was, man, I love that you trust God, and man, I love a big goal to strive for, but ain't no way, bro. Like, ain't gonna happen. But we got to go down there a few weeks ago and check out the work that God is doing. They've already got 200, uh, over 200 now churches up and going in the DR. They're gonna blow that thing out of the water. I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit is moving. God is doing incredible stuff down there, and we wanna be a part of it. God has given us so much, and we wanna leverage everything we have to throw our weight behind what God is doing down there. And so what we're gonna do is over the 
next five years, we are adopting a community in the big city of Santiago. We're adopting one community called Garabo. And inside Garabo, it's a little community about the size of Plainfield. They've got 10 neighborhoods in Garabo, and they all need churches. And so our dream is to partner with Go Ministries and plant 10 churches in Garabo in the next five years. This is going to be entirely Dominican-led. All those planters are going to be Dominican there. Our job is to just play behind the scenes and make sure they have everything they need. So we're going to be helping provide some training type things. We're going to be giving money. We're going to be giving prayer. We're going to be taking a bunch of trips down there. Our first big group trip is going down here in a few weeks that some of you are on that trip. I'm excited. There's going to be a lot more trips coming over the next five years. And so my ask of you is that you would just partner with us in what God is doing in Garabo in the Dominican Republic. That means for some of you, a lot of the room, a lot of you in the room, I hope you get to go down there. It's a super easy trip to get down to the Dominican. And like it's a trip that a parent and kid can go on, a grandparent grandkids, like your whole family can go on that trip. So I hope you'll choose to be a part of one of those trips to go down and see what God is doing there and be a part of it face-to-face, in person, and it will expand your worldview of the kingdom of God. So I hope you'll go. Man, I also hope that you're just going to keep giving generously. You all are a, a generous church. It's one of the best things that God has given us is the ability to leverage those resources for what he's doing around the world. So keep giving generously. But the third thing and the biggest thing I'm going to ask you to do is just pray. Pray, pray, pray for Garabo. Pray that God would give them every everything they need relationally, financially, spiritually, that we would get to see the kingdom of God come through those 10 churches in Garabo in the next five years. If you're anything like me, one of the biggest obstacles to your prayer life is that often you just don't know what to pray for, right? So this one is pretty simple. Pray for the Dominican Republic, 10 churches in five years in Garabo. And as a reminder, um, uh, throughout the building, we've got these fully alive journals for you. They're on tables. They're out there at the Welcome Center. They're on tables in the hub and stuff. Right now, in all those places beside the fully alive journals, we also have a little stickers. You can go grab one if you're like a sticker person. It just says Garabo. There's the Dominican Republic. Just to remind you to pray for what God is doing there. Put it on your water bottle or on your mirror or whatever to remind you to pray. We're going to be talking a lot about this over the next few years and the next few weeks specifically. So we're excited to get to be a part of what God is doing there. Um, We are jumping into a new series today though as we're starting the new year and we're walking through the Lord's Prayer. And part of the reason we're doing that is that there's a dirty little secret in pastoral ministry. And I'll just crack the door and I'll let you know what it is. And it's that often, unintentionally, in the American church, we have made it way too easy to follow Jesus. And as such, we have unintentionally often given birth to a half-baked, anemic kind of discipleship that lacks the resiliency required to follow Jesus and endure the difficulty of life as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven in an antagonistic world. Back in the early church, they didn't have that problem. This is a problem that we've invented. Um, Because back in the early church, like as Christianity was born in and around Jerusalem after Jesus rose from the dead, the years went on, it kind of began to expand around the Roman Empire little by little. And as the years wore on a little bit into like the second and third century, 100, 200 years after Jesus was born, they realized that in order for your faith to survive in the Roman Empire, people who were becoming Christians, they had to know what they were getting themselves into. It wasn't just an emotionalism kind of decision. And so if you were a citizen in the Roman Empire in like the city of Galatia or something in the second century, if you wanted to become a Christian, that conversion process was actually really long. You didn't get, just get to decide in a day. And the conversion process happened 
in three main phases. Uh, the first phase of becoming a Christian was called enrollment. Enrollment. And that's where you would sit down with the leaders of the church and you would undergo this extensive interview process to examine your life. They'd talk about like, hey, hey, what, what's your career? What are your hobbies? How are you spending your time and your money? They'd just kind of poke around in your life a little bit before they'd even let you get into the process of considering to become a Christian. Enrollment, that's the first phase. Then if you kind of pass that, you'd move to the second phase, which was called becoming a catechumen. It's a fancy word. It just means becoming a student. And basically, the requirement in that second phase was that for two or three years, you would attend intensive church classes where you would learn Christian doctrine, and you'd learn what the scriptures teach, and you'd learn the ethical implications of following Jesus in a depraved world. And again, they'd take another like really thorough, thorough moral inventory of your life. They'd like, hey, how... How are you treating your family? How are you handling your finances? Like, is there evidence of the demonic in your life? Like, serious stuff in this second phase. And then and only then, after two or three years of that, then you would get to go to the third phase of being baptized and actually becoming a follower of Jesus. Now, up until that point, before you actually became a Christian, you were limited in your ability to participate in the life of the church. Because back then, in the Roman Empire, second, third century, you, the church services every week would happen in two main parts. And the first part of the church service is wide open. Anybody who wants to come, you're welcome. Come as you are. You can sing the songs and you can hear the sermon. That's great. But then halfway through the church service, anybody who is not a baptized follower of Jesus, they would send you out. And only the Christians would get to stay for the second half. Like, can you imagine the implications if we did that today? It'd be crazy, right? And, and so only the baptized believers got to stay for the second part of the service. Now, put yourself in their shoes, Imagine you're in the Roman Empire, second century. You've been coming to church for like three years now. You're excited to become a Christian, but you have not been baptized yet. So you've never even seen the second half of a church service. You have no idea what happens and what those Christians do after you leave. But you're finally ready to get baptized. You've worked through phases one and two. You're going into phase three. And the way they would do it is that everybody would get baptized on Easter Sunday. You would actually get baptized in the nude, and then you would get out and they would clothe you in white and then and only then for the very first time you would get to sit through the entire church service. Now pause right there because I'm imagining that there's probably somebody in the room who's thinking bro like my new year's resolution was to give God one more shot and this is my first time here and you're talking about some weird stuff and you're telling me after we do all the weird stuff, then my reward is I get to sit through a longer church service, I think I'm out, thank you very much, right? Bear with me, okay? Put yourself back in that believer's shoes in the second century, imagine, imagine their anticipation that you've just been baptized. You've just committed your whole life to following King Jesus. Maybe your family even shunned you as a result. And now for the very first time, you get to sit through the second half of a church service. And when you do, you discover the three secrets that happen in that second half of the church service. Those three treasures that were only for the followers of Jesus. And the first treasure you discover was called the kiss of peace. 
that when it was just the Christians in the room, they would greet each other with an actual kiss. Paul would say in the New Testament, you remember, he says, greet each other with a holy kiss. And it was like kind of culturally appropriate there. It's kind of like a little Italian peck, right? And that was, that was just like this little symbol that, hey, welcome, you are part of this thing called the family of God. They greet each other with a holy kiss. Now, we are the church, and we're gonna practice this. Go ahead and turn to your neighbor, pucker up, please. Some of you are all like, yes, you're looking around, you know? <laughs> totally kidding, right? Um, that's the first thing, kiss of peace. The second thing you discover that was just for Christians was communion, this thing that we do every week, receiving the body and the blood of Jesus. And actually, when you got baptized, your very first communion would be milk and honey so that you would taste just how sweet it is to be a part of God's family. And then the third thing you'd discover in the second half of that church service was a secret weapon a secret weapon only available to the true blue followers of Jesus to enable them to live for him in the Roman Empire. And what was that secret weapon? It was the Lord's Prayer. Now think about that and how different that is from how we typically think about the Lord's Prayer, right? Because we're living in a somewhat like post-Christian world where like, it seems like half the country has at least half of the Lord's Prayer memorized, right? And when you think about the Lord's Prayer, we think of that like Friday Night Lights kind of scenario. You know, the football team's kneeling down in the locker room, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now let's go crush the cross-down rivals, right? And yet for them, the Lord's Prayer was a secret weapon for the believer to equip them for life in a hostile empire. This prayer, the Lord's Prayer, when you utter those words, you are joining yourself to the stories of saints and martyrs who've gone before you, saints and martyrs who have shut the mouths of lions and who've toppled kingdoms in love and who've taken the gospel to places where it had not yet been. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, you are joining your faith with the faith of that Christian in the second century, because that prayer is the prayer that alters history. The Lord's prayer is the prayer that changes worlds. That is the prayer that caused the Roman Empire to crumble under the weight of God's love. The Lord's prayer is the prayer that caused the civil rights movement to surge with the power of God's righteousness. It is the prayer that caused the walls of communism to dissolve under the force of God's justice. When you pray the Lord's prayer, you are wielding the same weapon as those early believers who knelt in the Roman arena before lions and wild beasts preparing to die nobly for the gospel with those words on their lips, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Those are the words that brought Dietrich Bonhoeffer comfort in the Nazi concentration camp. Those are the words today that bring hope and peace and strength to millions of our brothers and sisters all around the world who while you and I were getting our coffee this morning, they are suffering and in imprisoned and under the threat of death for their allegiance to King Jesus, and they are praying those words, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We get to pray the Lord's prayer. And so for seven weeks, we're going to be walking through this series together, just saying, Jesus, would you, would you teach us how to pray? And I'm operating um, under the assumption a little bit that if we went around the room this morning and I asked you, hey, how's your prayer life going? My guess is not very many of us in the room would say, you know what, it's awesome, I'm really killing it, thanks for asking, right? For most of us, like it's, it's pretty hard. And like for most of us, we, we think we should pray 
and, and, and we want to pray, or at least we want to want to pray, right? And, and we, we admire people who pray, and we think we should probably pray more often, and we should pray, probably pray better, and we should probably pray longer. And, and prayer is one of those things that's on our list of things we know we should do, but we rarely actually do, like changing the battery in our smoke alarms and going to the gym, right? And maybe once in a while we get really inspired, so we sit down to pray, and maybe we like open up a Bible verse or something, and we try to aim our thoughts in God's general direction, and we pray for absolutely everything that we can think of. And it takes about a minute and a half, and then we remember those things that we forgot to do, and so we pick up our phone and we go on with our day. Like, does that ring true for anybody else in the room besides me, right? It's hard, it's hard. And the good news is, the prayer's not just hard for you, It was actually hard for Jesus' earliest followers also. Um, When you read through the Gospels, those first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of the life of Jesus, the Lord's Prayer appears in two different places, in Luke chapter 11 and in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to spend most of our time in Matthew chapter 6, but in Luke chapter 11, there's a little interaction that Jesus' friends had with him, and it gives me hope. It's this. Luke chapter 11, verse 1 says, One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Two reasons that gives me hope. Uh, Number one is I think that implies that prayer was hard for Jesus' disciples too. And Jesus' disciples were not dummies. They were good little Jewish boys who'd grown up in synagogue and they had much of the Old Testament memorized and they prayed the 18 prayers that Jews would pray every single day. They had the words of those prayers memorized. They knew how to pray. But there was just still something that they didn't quite get it and it was hard. And so they asked Jesus to teach them to pray. That's the first reason it gives me hope. Here's the second reason that gives me hope is that this implies that prayer is something that can be taught. That prayer is something that you, yes, you, can actually learn how to do. And, and when you think about it, isn't that a, an amazing request of Jesus' disciples to make? Like these guys have been walking around with Jesus for three years. Think of the things that they have seen him do and the things that they could have asked for. They could have said, Jesus, man, could you teach us how to like tell stories and preach a sermon like that that the crowds will love? Jesus, could you teach us how to defend our faith against the people who are going to attack it? Jesus, that water to wine trick was really cool. How did you do that? Can you teach us how to control the weather patterns and walk on the water too? No, 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 they didn't ask for any of that. There was something that they'd seen the way Jesus lived and they saw the key to the whole thing Let him to ask this question, Lord, teach us to pray. And he does. He gives them the Lord's prayer. Imagine that you got a one-on-one this week with the greatest chef in the world, and you got to say, teach me your secret recipe. Or you got to get on a court with Steph Curry and ask, teach me to shoot. You got to get in a car with Mario Andretti and say, teach me how to drive. You get to sit in a room with Michelangelo and say, teach me how to paint. We get to come to Jesus and say, teach us to pray, and he does. And so for the next seven weeks, Jesus is going to teach us how to pray. But before we dive into this kind of secret weapon for the Christian that is the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew chapter 6, before Jesus actually teaches them how to pray, Jesus gives his followers two ways not to pray. 
that we're going to spend our time on today. Two ways not to pray. He walks through. This is Jesus' response kind of to the question. This is Matthew chapter 6 in that version. Jesus says this. He says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and and pray to your Father who's unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is the word of the Lord. Like this, this is how we pray. But before Jesus gets into how we should pray, Jesus gives us two ways that we should not pray. Two ways not to pray. And here's the first one. Jesus says, stop showing off because God meets you in the secret place. Stop showing off. Because God meets you in the secret place. Now, um, anytime you read the Bible, it's always important to look at the context. Like, what's happening around this text? What's going on around this to help me understand these particular verses? And the context here is that Jesus is preaching to a Jewish audience the greatest sermon that anybody ever preached. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. We're right in the middle of that sermon, Matthew chapter 6. And in that section, Jesus talks about the three main spiritual disciplines in the Jewish life, giving, praying, and fasting. Like Jewish rabbis did not say, you need to read your Bible because they didn't have scrolls in their homes. Most of the people were illiterate. They went to synagogue. A lot of them had much of the Old Testament memorized, but they didn't go read scripture. The three main disciplines of the Jewish life were praying, fasting, and giving. And yet Jesus addresses all of those right here in Matthew chapter six and says, watch out for hypocrisy in each of those. Don't do those in front of other people to be seen. He says, stop showing off. Now, the, the Greek word for hypocrisy there is the word hypocrites, which is the same word for an actor on stage who would wear a mask in a play, and he would pretend to be one thing in the performance, but then when he's off the stage, he's something totally else. And, and we know this is one of the greatest objections to Christianity, right? When you ask people why they left the faith, they'll tell you those, those Christians, they wear masks. Like, they're one thing at church, and they're something totally else. And, and so Jesus warns against hypocrisy as you follow him. He says, none of that here. If you're going to follow me, like, don't be like all those religious people, those hypocrites who love to pray and give and fast where people can see them so people will think they're super spiritual, but we don't, we don't play those church games. Stop showing off. The problem Jesus is getting at is the problem is selfishness, that in their praying, their giving, their fasting, they're not thinking about loving God and loving people. They're thinking about themselves and how it makes them look. Uh, many of you have, have probably seen this picture before. This is from last year. This is the shot where LeBron James became the NBA's all-time leading scorer. It was kind of an awesome moment. The build-up to it was, was long and dramatic. You know, It's this great moment in sports history. But what I think is fascinating about this picture is look at all the people who were there watching this happen. 
These people paid hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands of dollars to be there for this moment, and yet almost none of them are witnessing that moment with their own two eyes, are they? What are they doing? They're all holding up their phones. That means that what is more important to them than actually seeing the moment for themselves is recording the moment so that they could later post it so that everybody else would know that they were there. And that's the way of the world, isn't it? They're gonna tell you, build a platform, get noticed, show off, be seen, and Jesus says, when you follow me, we gotta flip that on its head. Stop showing off, he says. Why and why? He says, because God meets you in the secret place. He says it like this in verse six. He says, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who's unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And so if the problem is selfishness, then Jesus says the solution is, go to the secret place. Go to the secret place where nobody is gonna see you. Now, every single one of us, we all have secret places in our lives. You have those little moments throughout your day that nobody else knows about. And Jesus says, go there. He says, go to those moments because God is there. Let your secret places be sacred places. Now, um, going to the secret place is getting harder and harder, isn't it? Because in our age of infinite distraction, we all have these little digital appendages that live in our pocket that are hardwired to a multi-billion dollar industry that is designed with the sole purpose of stealing your attention, of eliminating the secret place from your life. Now, um, I'm not very old. I'm gonna turn 30 here in a few weeks, right? But um, I am old enough to remember this ancient cultural phenomenon, maybe some of you remember it too, called boredom. Do you remember that? You remember that? Yeah, it was, it was crazy, wasn't it? Like before that digital appendage got attached to us. And, and in, that, in the age of boredom, when you woke up in the middle of the night, you might remember this, and you couldn't sleep, what did you do? You just had to lay there. You remember that? And when you came to a red light, what did you have to do? You just had to wait for it to turn green. And you're standing in line at the store, and what did you do? You just had to wait for it to be your turn. Do you guys remember boredom? Wasn't that crazy? Yeah. There's a story that Martin Luther King Jr. told about his life. It was January of 1956, and he had just gotten out of jail out of the, after the Montgomery bus boycotts. And as he got home, his home was bombed. Thankfully, his wife and his seven-month-old daughter were unharmed, but they were quite shaken, as you can imagine. And the death threats just kept going on and on and on. And one night, it was midnight, and Dr. King was up because he'd just gotten another one of those phone calls, and he answered, and the voice on the other end of the line says, we're tired of you. If you aren't out of this town in three days, we're gonna blow your brains out and blow up this house. Those are Martin Luther King's words. And, and, and in his own words, he was scared. He was shaken. In that moment, he was on the verge of giving up. He just didn't know if he could do it anymore. And he's up all alone, just hung up the phone. It's the middle of the night. There's no way he can go back to sleep. And so what does he do? He makes a pot of coffee, and he sits down at the kitchen table to do business with God. And in his own words, he said this. He prays, and he said, Lord, I'm trying to do what's right, but I'm weak, and I'm faltering, and I'm losing my courage. And there, awake in the secret place, alone in the middle of the night, 
He waited and he waited until he heard a voice in his spirit and the voice said, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. He could have quit the next day and if he would have, none of us would know his name this morning. But he didn't. And with God's help, the civil rights movement carried on. Here's my hypothetical question about that story. What if Martin Luther King Jr. had a smartphone? I mean, what do you do when you're awake in the middle of the night and can't sleep? Like, what if he would have spent those hours scrolling instead of sitting in the quiet at the kitchen table doing business with God? And Jesus says, if you're gonna live a life of prayer, you gotta go to the secret place. Jesus says nothing here about when we're supposed to pray, how long you're supposed to pray, whether it's standing up, sitting down, eyes open, eyes open, eyes closed, hands folded, morning, evening, none of that. My guess is he doesn't care that much, but he does say you have to go to the secret place because God is there. And, and when we look at the life of Jesus, we see that he practiced that himself, that Jesus started his ministry spending 40 days alone in the desert before Jesus had big events, before he chose his 12 disciples. Luke chapter six tells us that he spent an entire night alone in the wilderness. Another time after Jesus spent all day long healing every single sick person that came to him, I know what I would have gone home and done. I'm going home to eat some dinner and veg out. But Mark chapter one, verse 35 says, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he he left the house and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. He went to the secret place time and time and time again. I'm, I'm blown away by this. If you read through the Gospels, Jesus leaves the crowds. He, he leaves work undone. He leaves people who want to hear more teaching from him. He leaves people unhealed. He leaves his disciples behind and he goes to the secret place to pray. Luke chapter five, verse 16 says that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. You gotta go to the secret place. And, and I don't know what it looks like for your life. It's different for all of us. I got to sit in a deer stand for several hours this last week. That, that was the secret place for me. And, and you know that feeling when you get there to the secret place and you're finally alone and you're finally quiet and your thoughts maybe start to slow down just a little bit and you become present. And my guess is, if you're anything like me, something happens in that moment, that when you come face to face with God and you come face to face with yourself, it's not always easy. The spiritual teacher Henry Nouwen said it like this. He said, in solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding no friends to talk to, no telephone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract, just me, naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. It is this nothingness that I have to face in my solitude, a nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work, and my distractions so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I am worth something. When you go to the secret place, it will not be easy, and everything in you will want to run out of the secret place and back into the noise. But my challenge for you, if I could challenge you as we start the new year together, would you just find a time and a place that worked for you? Whatever it is, find a time and a place that worked for you. And over these seven weeks together in the Lord's Prayer, would you build the habit of going to the secret place? And maybe for you that's as simple as like 
just recapturing the secret places you already have in your life, where you are sitting in traffic and you're standing in line and you're waking up and you're getting ready or you're going to bed or you're going to the bathroom for Pete's sake. Instead of filling those moments, what if you let them stay quiet and you meet God there? And maybe you can do more. Maybe you find a time that works for you and you chisel it out and you say, this is my moment. These are my few moments today to just sit, to be still, to be silent, to let my heart become aware of God's presence. And when you do, I can promise something will happen. You will get distracted, won't you? And you're gonna think of that thing that you gotta do and that person that you need to talk to. And when that comes, instead of fighting those distractions, let those lead you back to God because maybe, just maybe, those distractions are exactly what God wants to talk with you about. So whatever you do, over the next seven weeks, Jesus says, go to the secret place. That's the first way not to pray. He says, stop showing off, because God meets you in the secret place. Here's the second thing. Jesus says, stop babbling, because God knows what you need. Stop babbling, because God knows what you need. Um, The Gettysburg Address has 286 words. The Declaration of Independence has 1,322 words. The United States government regulations on the sale of cabbage have 26,911 words. The Lord's Prayer has 66. Even if you pray it slowly, it takes less than a minute. In verses seven and eight, Jesus says, and when you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So don't be like the hypocrites because they pray to show off, but don't be like the pagans because they just babble. And Jesus says here, the problem is mindlessness. If the other problem was selfishness, this problem is mindlessness. Maybe you remember the story from the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 18, where Elijah, the lone ranger prophet of the true and living God, is facing off against 850 prophets of the pagan fake idols, Baal and Asherah. And they meet up on Mount Carmel, and they're going to have a contest. Let's see whose God will send down fire from heaven to light this sacrifice. And whoever's God responds to your prayers and lights the sacrifice on fire, that's the true and living God. You remember this story? And so 850 prophets, they spend all morning into the afternoon hours dancing around and cutting themselves and yelling and singing and babbling in their prayers. Babble, 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 babble. Just talking on and on and on. But their fake prayers to their fake gods do absolutely nothing. And then Elijah steps up and he prays one sentence to the true and living God and fire fell from heaven. It's sobering to think about, but today, around the world, hundreds of millions of hours of prayer will be offered to fake gods, and those prayers will accomplish absolutely nothing. Jesus says, don't pray mindless prayers like that. Don't just babble. Remember who we're praying to, because if the problem is mindlessness, then the solution, he says, is to trust God's knowledge Trust God's knowledge. He says, God knows what you need before you even ask. Jesus is echoing here the plain teaching of Scripture that God knows everything. The big fancy $5 theological church word for that is that he's omniscient. God is all-knowing. It's all throughout Scripture. Isaiah chapter 46, God says, I am God. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. He goes on, Isaiah chapter 65, he says, before they call, before you even pray, I will answer. 
While they're still speaking, I will hear Psalm 139 says, Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God knows history before it even happens. God knows everybody who's ever won a presidential election in the past, and he knows everybody who's gonna win a presidential election until Jesus comes back. God knows everybody who's ever won an Olympic medal in the past, and God knows everybody who's gonna win an Olympic medal until Jesus comes back. God knows every single time that the Colts have won the Super Bowl in the past, and he knows when Jesus is coming back, right? Like, <laughs> man, we need the help, don't we? Goodness, yeah. God knows what you need. You don't have to babble. You don't have to have the perfect words and just keep talking on and on and on and on. He knows what you need before you even ask, so a simple prayer will do. Now, maybe if you're anything like me, the question in your mind is, okay, cool, but if God already knows, then why pray at all, right? And we struggle with this. This is the question. Like, how much does what we pray for actually change things and make a difference, and when we're thinking about that question, there's two main errors that we have to look out for. Let's frame it in terms of an equation. If God's sovereignty overwhelms human agency, then prayer must be pointless, right? Like if God's sovereignty, God's will is just going to keep on going and our prayers are going to come up and just bounce right off and nothing's going to change, then why even pray? That's one error. Over here, though, is the other error. If human agency has the ability to change God's sovereignty, then prayer is control. Like if God's will is going along here, but every time my prayer comes up for anything I want, I can knock God's will off kilter. Well, what kind of a God is that? And the reality of it is much more mysterious that somehow God has chosen for his sovereignty and our agency to mix together so that prayer is not pointless and prayer is not control, but prayer is actually communion, that as we pray, our will and God's will become intertwined to somehow accomplish his purposes on the world. So yes, he knows what, he need, what, what we need, and yes, prayer also changes things. And how exactly does that work? I have no idea. I don't know how my cell phone works either, but I still use it. And, and so the reality of this is, I guess if I could ask you a question. What if we actually believe this? What if you actually believe that God knows what you need and you actually believe that prayer really works and changes things? Because God doesn't need us. Jesus said he can make the rocks cry out to worship him. He does not need you and I bumbling idiots to get his will done on earth. And yet somehow he has chosen to invite our agency and our will to intermingle with his will to somehow make his purposes known in the world. The great philosopher Blaise Pascal said it like this. He says that God has instituted prayer so as to confer upon his creatures the dignity of being causes. What that means is that in other words, Life doesn't just have to happen to you. We don't have to just go through life saying, well, life happens. You actually get to join with God in causing things to happen, in channeling the events of history, in literally bending reality toward the kingdom of light. Don't you want to be a part of that? Because I do. Sky Jatani, he says it like this. He says, we are not merely passive set pieces in some kind of prearranged cosmic drama, but we are active participants with God in the writing, directing, design, and action that unfolds. 
Prayer, therefore, is much more than asking God for this or that outcome. He says it is drawing into communion with him and therefore taking up our privileged role as his people in prayer. We are invited to join him in directing the course of his world. What if we actually believed that? And so, my guess is that if we actually believe God knows what you need, but that prayer also changes things, my guess is if we actually believe that, we would pray, right? And we would know it doesn't have to be long, it doesn't have to be elaborate, it doesn't have to be complicated, and if you feel like you stink at it, like you don't have to get discouraged because a simple prayer will do because God knows what you need before you ask, but he's just inviting you to know him too. So each week over the course of this series, we're gonna give you one practical thing to try at home, one little practice for you to take home to help you in your prayer life as you're building this habit in. I'm gonna get back on my soapbox though and talk about these journals, okay? Because our practice for this week is praying scripture. Praying scripture. Um, A lot of the time, I don't know what to pray for, and so it's been really helpful for me to allow God's word to fuel my prayers back to him. And if you go grab one of these journals, they're at the Welcome Center there, they're out on the tables in the hub. If you haven't gotten one yet, they're free, go grab one. Or even if you're working with somebody who's like, curious about following Jesus, grab an extra one, work through this with them. It's got some exercises there in the front for you to explore, hey, what would it look like for us to do life with Jesus in community on mission? But then most of this journal is just a template for you to use in your daily time with the Lord. If you already have that habit or if you don't have that habit in place, this is helpful for you to build it to help you work with any text in the Bible to say whatever text I'm reading that day, however many verses, this is how I can process what's happening in the text and then turn that into prayer so that I can get to know God too. And throughout this series, our, our elders are gonna be leading us in communion every week. And today, uh, Stacy Peters, one of our elders, is gonna lead us in communion, but also teach us how to pray scripture, specifically for Garabo and the things that are going on there. And here's why. Here's why this is important. Um, I heard a story a while back. I heard a preacher tell this story about somebody he knew, and it's a true story. There's a, a mom, you know, the wife of the family, and, and her dad was in the nursing home. And so every Sunday afternoon, she'd get the kids together after church, and they'd go visit Grandpa in the nursing home every Sunday afternoon. And every day, when they'd, when they'd, when they'd drive up to the nursing home every Sunday afternoon, Grandpa would be sitting out there in the courtyard waiting for him. And this happened week after week after week, and, and the years wore on, and some of you have been through this process with your own parents, and Grandpa's mind began to go, and things just started to get harder for him. And eventually, it got to the point that he didn't remember the kids' names anymore. He couldn't find his way back to his room on his own. But still, every Sunday afternoon when they'd come by, Grandpa would be sitting out there in the courtyard waiting for him. And eventually she got curious, and so she said, Dad, you don't don't even remember the kids' names anymore, but you're still out here every Sunday afternoon waiting on us when we come. Do you know what day it is? He said, no. She said, well, how, how are you out here then waiting Every Sunday, he said, sweetie, I wait for you every day. You've got a father in heaven. He's waiting for you. Let's let this be the year that we come. Will you pray with me? God, you know what we need, so we'll try not to babble too much. I'm thankful for your gospel that you have sent your son to die for us. 
to rise again to new life so that we could become fully alive in him and that through him, you've made a way for us to come to you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So help us, God. Call us to the secret place. Give us the words to say. Purify our hearts. So thankful that you know what we need. So this year, would you teach us to pray? And in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.